I'd like to have you turn, if you will, to John chapter 18, the Gospel of John chapter 18. We're, we are still within the time frame of one night. One night that began back in chapter 13, when Jesus gathered his disciples together for the Passover supper. And through chapters 13 through 17, actually chapters 13 through 16, after Judas Iscariot leaves at the bidding of Jesus to go do his deed, Jesus spent this intimate moment with his disciples, speaking to them, and again, chapters 13, 14, and 15, about all that had happened, all that was happening, and all that would happen, leading, of course, to the cross, and eventually his death, his burial, and his resurrection. In chapter 17, Jesus, on his way with his disciples to the Garden of Gethsemane, pauses to pray. But he prays in the presence of his disciples. And he prays for them, and he prays for us, those who would become followers of Jesus. And it is at the end of that prayer that we find ourselves near the garden with Jesus. We're told in verse 1, when Jesus had spoken these words, he went forth with his disciples over the brook Kidron, where was a garden, into the which he entered and his disciples. And Judas also, which betrayed him, knew the place. For Jesus oft-times resorted thither with his disciples. In other words, he went there often. Judas then, having received a band of men and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, cometh thither with lanterns and torches and weapons. And Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that should come upon him, went forth and said unto them, Whom seek ye? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus saith unto them, I am he. And don't, re- don't forget that uh, the he is not there in the original text. So what Jesus said was, I am. And Judas also, which betrayed him, stood with them. He stood with this band of men. And as soon then as he had said unto them, I am he, they went backward and fell to the ground. Then asked he them again, Whom seek ye? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus answered, I have told you that I am. If therefore you seek me, let these, speaking of his disciples, go their way. That the same might be fulfilled which he spake. Of them which thou gavest me have I lost none. 
the most private moments of ministry toward all of his disciples have, have ended. And the more public displays of rejection and resentment and ridicule leading to redemption about to begin. Jesus' light now shines the brightest despite men's darkest hearts. For where man seeks to do his worst, God responds with his very best. And Jesus, of course, is God's very best. As Paul had stated in Romans chapter 5, verse 20, in the second part of that verse, he said, but where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. Jesus demonstrates his, his great devotion to his Father in, in pressing forth toward Gethsemane and eventually to the cross. That devotion, that devotion of Jesus is, is, is highlighted in the phrase, went forth, that you see in verse 1 and in verse 4. Twice it is used. It is the single Greek word, exerkomai, a word that means to proceed deliberately with specific purpose. To proceed deliberately with specific purpose. And in Jesus' case, knowing exactly what he was doing. Jesus never played guessing games. Didn't have to. He knew the beginning from the end and the end from the beginning because he indeed was the creator of the heavens and the earth. But he was going forth in his humanity, in his body, in his flesh. He was going forth to prepare himself spiritually, being that he was facing now the hour to which his father had called him, the hour of his death. Now when you go back to John chapter 12 for just a moment, verses 23 and 24, when certain Gentiles wanted to come and, and have an audience with Jesus, that Jesus said something very interesting. In John 12, 23, he answered them saying, the hour is come, the hour is come that the Son of Man should be glorified. And verily, verily, I say unto you, except a corn or a grain of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. And he was speaking of himself. He was speaking of the very fact that he was that seed, that corn of wheat that would fall into the ground and die. The necessity for us was that Jesus did die and would die because without his death, the death of the Lamb of God, the pure and holy Lamb of God who taketh away the sin of the world, without that, we have no hope. Our own death for ourselves would not be enough. Someone else's death for us would not be enough. He says, but if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. Every believer in this room is fruit to that death and growth. So he knew it was God's will for him to die for the sins 
of the world. He knew the awful separation from God that sin causes, and so he knew the powerful meaning of his own statement from the cross when he quoted from from the psalmist David in Psalm 22, verse 1, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Why art thou so far from helping me? And from the words of my roaring. As Matthew records that very statement of Jesus in the Aramaic, about the ninth hour, Matthew 27, 46, about the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is to say, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And so there was this, this dreadful, dreadful pressure of God's coming judgment upon sin, which was to be exercised upon Jesus, which, which, which brings us to this point. And there's actually a couple of points that I want to make here because I, I think that we need, to, we need to keep coming back to the Gospels to realize how great the calling was for Jesus to take upon himself the sins of the world. How great it was. You think that we're just a group of, you know, a few hundred people here today. At some other time, we would look around, let's say, and just add up all of the people that are in churches today in El Paso or in say to Texas and you keep going on and on until you begin to realize we're not talking about just a handful of people we're talking about billions and billions of people who have lived on this earth from the time of the fall and everyone born a sinner everyone needing salvation and Jesus came to die for the sins of men all men not just a handful not just a few. That was dreadful pressure, if I may say so, because he was dying not only for those who had preceded him and those who were on the earth with him, but those who would come after him. Our sins. So there was that judgment. But there's another point, another point of, I, I believe, of great importance here, because the point is that, that John the Apostle who wrote this gospel is, is silent about the Lord's agony in the garden. He's silent about a great deal, in fact. He does not tell us of Jesus' claim to have power to summon the hosts of heaven to his aid. As Matthew records in Matthew 26, and actually, he's actually where we are here right now. In just a couple of verses, Peter's going to take out a sword and he's going to cut the ear off of the chief priest's uh, servant, Malchus. And this is what Jesus is referring to here in Matthew when he says, And behold, one of them, speaking of Peter, one of them which were uh, with Jesus stretched out his hand, drew his sword, and struck a servant of the high priest, and smote off his ear, and then said Jesus unto him, and listen to what he said. John does not record this, but Matthew does. He says, put up again thy sword into his place, for all, that the, uh, for all they that take the sword shall perish with the sword. Then he says this, thinkest thou that I cannot now pray to my father, and he shall presently give me more than twelve legions of angels? That's just an example of something that John didn't record. John was silent about Judas's kiss. He was silent about the Lord being deserted by all the disciples. He was silent about the false witnesses. 
He was silent about that sham, uh, uh, much of the, of, of, the, uh, of the trial that Jesus was taken to. The examination before Herod, he's silent about that. He was silent about Pilate's wife's message, about Pilate's hand washing. He was silent about the earthquake and the tearing of the temple's veil. He was silent about the centurion's confession and even the repentance of one of the thieves on the cross and much more. And while John could have written volumes about those things, the intention for his gospel, something that we need to come back to and remember what we studied early on, but that the intention of his gospel and for his gospel was to emphasize the person of Jesus Christ and especially the signs that emphasized his deity. We've already been through those seven signs. We've been through the seven I am statements of Jesus. These were the things that John emphasized. He was saying Jesus is God, the Son, not just the Son of God. I want you to consider, if you will, what John will later write in this gospel in John 20, verses 30 and 31. He said, And many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. That's another part of that intention that John had was that you have this gospel to know who Jesus is so that you might believe and get to eternal life. He says, and that believing you might have life through his name. That is eternal life through his name. And he ends the gospel with this verse, verse 25 of John 21. He says, and there are also many other things which Jesus did, the which if should be written, if they should be written every one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that should be written. Now you might think that John is exaggerating here, but no, he's not exaggerating because just go back to what Jesus did at the beginning of creation. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and we know from scripture that Jesus was the creator. So there aren't enough volumes in this world to write what Jesus has done. So John is not exaggerating one bit. But here in this garden, Jesus was devoted to his father and he was committed to doing his father's will. But to do so, being that he was in flesh, being that he had blood, being that he was a man, 100% man, as well as 100% God. He needed to pray. How often did Jesus go off by himself to pray? But he needed to pray and he needed to seek the Father's face, which was his whole reason for heading to the Garden of Gethsemane, to be alone with his Father and to have him strengthen him for the, the ordeal ahead of him, which is the judgment of the cross. But that's... That brings up one question. Why Gethsemane? Why Gethsemane? And by the way, the word Gethsemane itself literally means olive press. Olive press. And you know anything about an olive press in those days? It was just made out of a stone, very rough hewn stone, 
that would go over another stone and they would throw the olives in this round kind of cylinder that uh, had a, a, an area that the stone would go around and it would crush the olives. And in the crushing, the oil of the olive would come out. And this is what Jesus was going to experience, the very crushing for the sins of men. It's interesting that the oil that is spoken of is representative of the Holy Spirit as well. Keep that in mind. So there is Gethsemane, but why? For all the accurate details given to us by John, his gospel is also saturated with symbolism that has great spiritual truth and great spiritual meaning. And one such symbol is the garden. You see, the Kidron Valley is located east of Jerusalem between the wall of the city and the Mount of Olives. Those of you who have been with us to Israel have seen that, that, that whole scenario where you, we normally start at the Mount of Olives and walk our way down to the Garden of Gethsemane. Then eventually we look up and we see the eastern wall of the city of Jerusalem and the eastern gate. So that's, that's kind of the scenario. It's still the same after all these years. A little different on the wall, but still the same after all these years. So you get a, you get a picture that all of this is, is accurate. The, the Garden of Gethsemane is on the western slope of Olivet, which is the Mount of Olives, so it, it's still there. And Jesus may have gone there often with his disciples to rest, to meditate, to pray. Well, he certainly went there that night. Luke tells us in Luke 22, verses 39 through 46, a little bit of what we don't get from John. He says, and he came out and went as he was wont, which means as he was accustomed, to the Mount of Olives. And his disciples also followed him. And when he was at the place, he said unto them, pray that you enter not into temptation. Now, this suggests that all of the disciples were there, all 11, all 11. What we will come to find out when we read the other Gospels is that three went with Jesus a little further into the garden. Eight of them actually then stayed near, near to the entrance of the garden to pray. And then he took Peter, James, and John, and they went in deeper. But all in all, Jesus was separated even from them. We're told in verse 41, as we go on, it says, And he was withdrawn from them about a stone's cast, and kneeled down and prayed, saying, Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. And there appeared an angel unto him from heaven, strengthening him. And being in an agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was, as it were, great drops of blood falling down to the ground. The press. The press of what was to come. And when he rose up from prayer and was come to his disciples, he found them sleeping for sorrow and said unto them, Why sleep ye? Rise and pray lest ye enter into temptation. Interesting that it says, why sleep ye? Rise and pray, lest you enter into temptation. And he said that after Luke 
comments, he found them sleeping for sorrow. You know, many times when we sleep for sorrow or when we sleep because of anxieties or worries that we have, uh, we lay down, we don't really sleep much, right? There's really not a lot of sleep, good physical sleep. But eventually you become so anxious that all you can do is, is fall asleep, and that's what they had done. And Jesus told them, rise and pray. We know from the Gospel of Matthew and Mark that Jesus separated Peter, James, and John from the others to watch and pray three times. Jesus would get alone to pray, and three times he would find his disciples asleep, the three. But one other point was sure, one that we don't want to miss. Judas Iscariot knew that this was where Jesus would be. Judas Iscariot knew where Jesus would be. And the fact is, Jesus knew that Judas knew. Jesus knew that Judas knew. How could he not? Jesus knows the end from the beginning and the beginning from the end. Jesus knew what the Pharisees thought. There were things that could never get, things would never get past Jesus. And the Lord would be ready for him. Jesus was ready for Judas. It was no surprise. Jesus, before anybody else could hear, knew that Judas was not coming alone. But we'll come back to that for a moment, and in a moment. <clears throat> what is significant about the garden, though, from the standpoint of symbolism, what is significant about the garden is that human history began in a very special garden, the Garden of Eden, going all the way back to Genesis 2 and 3. And the first sin of man was committed in that garden. And it was the first Adam, who we know to be Adam. It was the first Adam that disobeyed God and was cast out of the garden. But it would be the last Adam, Jesus Christ. That is what Paul calls him, the last Adam. It would be Jesus Christ who was obedient in coming to the Garden of Gethsemane. It was in the Garden of Eden that the first Adam brought sin and death to mankind, but it was Jesus, the last Adam, by his obedience, who brought righteousness and life to all who would believe in him and all who would trust in him. And it would be the Apostle Paul who would give us an understanding of some of this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 when he talks about what Christ came to do in rising from the dead. In 1 Corinthians 15, verses 20 through 22, he says, But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the firstfruits of them that slept. Which means, of course, of them that have passed away. For since by man came death, by man, by man came death, that is, of course, Adam, the first Adam, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. 
So, so we see that, that contrast between the first Adam and the second Adam. And later on in verse 45 of 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says this, and so it is written, the first man, Adam, was made a living soul. The last Adam, that's Jesus, was made a quickening spirit. A quickening spirit. One who actually gives life. One was given life. One gives life. And that's Jesus. But of the last Adam, Paul said this in Philippians 2, verse 8. He said, and being found in fashion as a man. So he speaks of Jesus who came voluntarily to this earth and took upon himself flesh. He says, being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death. And the stress here is on obedience. He became obedient unto death. You know, we're told in the, in the book of Hebrews that, that Jesus learned obedience by the things that he suffered. He learned obedience by the things that he suffered. And we can do no less to understand the importance of obedience as believers. But Jesus became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. So history then, began in a garden. History changed radically its direction in the Garden of Gethsemane. And history itself will end one day in another garden. A garden in the heavenly city that John describes in Revelation chapters 21 and 22. I encourage you sometime today to read that passage. Because in that garden, there will be no more death and there will be no more curse. We can't we can say amen to that, amen? All right, good. We find there the river of the water of life will flow freely and ceaselessly from the very throne of God. And the tree of life will, will produce fruit in abundance. Eden, therefore, the Garden of Eden, was the garden of disobedience and sin. Gethsemane, or the olive press, was the garden of obedience and submission. And heaven shall be the eternal garden of delight, of satisfaction, and of completion to the glory of Almighty God. I pray that we will keep our focus upon that garden, because gardens have significance to our salvation. The brook Kidron is also significant in that the name Kidron means dusky or, or gloomy, and, and it referred to the dark waters that were often stained with the blood from the temple sacrifices, being that it flowed so close to, to the temple at that time. And you have to remember how much blood was shed during the feast, of, uh, the feast of Passover. And of course, the blood had to run off and away from the temple. And so the Kidron would, would, uh, would take on this, this 
the stain and, and what we learn here in our text is that Jesus was about to go through those dark waters. Prophetically, the psalmist David would write this in Psalm 42, verse 7. He, he would write, Deep calleth unto deep at the noise of thy water spouts. All thy waves and thy billows are gone over me. That is what Jesus was dealing with. That is what Jesus was going to have to face. The waves and the billows of the dark waters of judgment. I mentioned the psalmist King David because he himself had to cross the Kidron. When you read in 2 Samuel 15 verse 23, he had to cross the Kidron. He, he was rejected by his own nation. He was rejected and betrayed by his own son, Saul, uh, Absalom. Which recalls that Jesus was rejected by his own people. And at that very moment was going to be betrayed by one of his own disciples. You see how close these pictures are. Significantly, David's unfaithful and deceitful counselor, Ahithophel, became one of Absalom's counselors. Ahithophel hanged himself while Absalom met his death by hanging, being that his bunch of hair got caught up in an oak tree and, and, and he hung himself. Why do I bring that up? Because Judas, of course, would go and hang himself after his dastardly deed. How, how close these pictures are. How significant all of these things are. How significant where they took place are to what we see happening in the life of Jesus as he heads to the cross. But first things first. We have to get back to Judas in the garden. Notice verses 2 through 5. It says, And Judas also, <clears throat> which betrayed him, knew the place, the garden of Gethsemane, for Jesus oft times resorted thither with his disciples. Judas then, having received a band of men and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, stop there and think for a moment what that says. Judas had gone to the chief priests and the Pharisees, in fact, to offer his, his willingness, if you will, to turn Jesus into them. So they provided for them what he, what he may need. You know, he might have needed, well, listen, we, we, we've got whatever you need. We'll give you, we'll give you a band of men. The word band, by the way, comes from a, a word uh, that we also can translate as a cohort. And a cohort was a, 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 a tenth of a, of a legion. And... Um, that's about 600 to 1,000 men. It all depends on if you think a legion is 6,000 men or 10,000 men. We'll give them the benefit of the doubt and just give them 6,000. And so therefore, a tenth of that was 600 men. And I figured that would be easier for us to understand because there's 600 chairs in this room. So we're a little less than a cohort here. But the point is that they were given to Judas if he needed them to go get one person who would be unarmed 
and who would be known as the Lamb of God who taketh away the sin of the world. Well, keep that in mind. So he's given these uh, men, and he cometh hither with, they cometh hither with him with lanterns and torches and weapons. And Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that should come upon him, went forth, and he said unto them, Whom seek ye? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus saith unto them, I am. And Judas also, which betrayed him, stood with them. He stood with the cohort. Now Judas did not come to the garden alone, as we have seen. I know, I, I know there's, a, there's a little hymn chorus, you know, I, uh, I come to the garden alone while the dew is still on the roses. No, that's not what's happening here. He didn't come to the garden alone. In fact, there were more than 600 men with lanterns and torches, enough light to see where they were going and to identify the one person to be betrayed. And they not only came with lanterns and torches, but with swords and clubs, because that was the weapon of choice for these men. So this band was made available, this, this cohort was made available to Judas for the apprehension of the Lamb of God, who would submit willingly, by the way, and he would submit with meekness, because that was Jesus. Uh, could I ask you, was that a little overkill? Don't forget, Judas knew something about Jesus. Turn to Matthew 26, verse 55. Because something that John doesn't record, but Matthew does, is this one statement that Jesus makes because of what he sees in this multitude that comes for him. In verse 55, it says, In that same hour, Jesus uh, said Jesus to the multitudes, Are you come out as against a thief with swords and staves for to take me? I sat daily with you teaching in the temple, and you laid no hold on me. The fact that Jesus hadn't been arrested in the temple gives indication that there was a divine timetable that controlled Jesus' life. But there was something else that we needed to understand here, and that, that is that Jesus, there was no reason to arrest Jesus for anything. Other than the fact that the, that the Jewish religious leaders wanted to accuse him of something, and blasphemy was the closest thing that they could accuse him for, even though he was right about everything he said. It was their refusal to accept his truth as Messiah. But Jesus said, I sat daily with you. You laid no hold on me. Now there were times when they tried to arrest him and psh, Jesus' man was quick. Woo! Vamanos. He was out of there. Got out of the grasp a few times. Because it wasn't time. That's the point. There was a divine timetable that controlled Jesus' life. Nothing by accident, all by appointment. Nothing by accident, all by appointment. As Peter would later preach at Pentecost, under the inspiration of the, of the Holy Spirit, he said in Acts chapter 2, verses 21 through 23, and I, I'm going to just, you get verse 21 for free here. I, I don't know why it ended up on my text, but it, it's a free one. It's a good one, too. 
Because he said, and it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. All right, you get a free verse there. All right, verse 22. Peter says, you men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs. There was no denying everything that Jesus did. He says, which God did by him in the midst of you, as you yourselves also know. Him being delivered by, notice not being delivered by a cohort, being delivered by a band of men with, with lanterns and torches and, and swords. He says, him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, you have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. So it wasn't them really that determined this. It wasn't Judas that determined it by his betrayal. It was God all along. But here, this begs the question now. Did they even know whom they were seeking? Did they know whom they were seeking? And did they know why they were seeking him? Because it is quite significant that the text in verse 5 says that Judas stood with the cohort. How painfully sad it is when people who should know better stand on the wrong side of history. In this case, standing on the wrong side of eternity. And only one thing remained for Jesus to do in this confrontation. It was to state clearly who he was. Notice in verses 6 through 9 of John 18. As soon then as he had said unto them, I am he, or I am, they went backward and fell to the ground. I'm not going to demonstrate. Because I could fall easy, but I can't get back up. Right? I fall down, I can't get up. All right, you heard the commercial. All right. But that's what happened. They fell back and fell to the ground when he said, I am. Why? Because he said, Ego Eimi, that was the name of God. And that was the power of the name of God spoken by Jesus himself. And then asked he them again. And I would have to say he probably asked them a little more stern. The question, whom seek ye? <laughs> Can you see the picture? They're all down on the ground. And he come, well, so who, it is? who is it? Who it is? Who it is, man? Who it is that you're seeking here? Whom seek ye? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus answered, I have told you that I am he. If therefore you seek me, let these go their way. Speaking of his disciples, that the same might be fulfilled which he spake. Of them which thou gavest me have I lost none. So as we read back in verse 4, Jesus knew perfectly well what was going on. His insight was, after all, supernatural. There's no doubt about that. But everything that took place was expected by the Lord. And this certainly underlined his divine attribute of omniscience, 
Omniscience is uh, the attribute of knowing all, all-knowing. Jesus was all-knowing. This is what made him God. He was all-knowing. In his saying, whom seek ye, Jesus placed himself between his disciples in danger, directing the, the attention of the cohort to himself. Jesus had to go to the cross alone. He had to go to the cross alone. Next, John underlined Jesus' omnipotence. His omnipotence being the divine attribute of being all-powerful. And only God can be all-powerful. That's verses 5 and 6. Now, what's interesting is that they answered twice the same thing, Jesus of Nazareth. And their answer, Jesus of Nazareth, reflected a measure of contempt and of disrespect. Because in the eyes of the Judeans, it was bad enough being from Galilee, but to be from Nazareth? I mean, we even know from reading the Gospels that, uh, you know, the question or the statement was made, can anything good be, <laughs> come from Nazareth? Well, only one, that was Jesus, but the fact is Jesus, excuse me, Jesus was born in, in Bethlehem, Judea, but he was raised in Nazareth. So calling Jesus a Nazarene was, was intended as an insult. A lot of insults being thrown around today in our world in our country, a lot of insults. And, and you know, if you, if you really take a moment and, and examine the things that, that are, people are being, you know, people are saying about the administration, the president, all this, all this kind of stuff, it, it, most of the stuff that's being said is, is, is being done on a, a very ignorant level, very, very ignorant level. Because we stop thinking and we just start following what others do. It made me wonder about Judas and those that came with him to take Jesus. Did they even know who Jesus was? Did they even know what he had done? So when they call him that, Jesus answered again. He said, I am. There was no doubt now. Anyone who stood with Judas and the cohort were declaring themselves as enemies of the great I Am. It wouldn't have mattered if Judas had come with 10,000 times 10,000. The results would have been the same. They all would have gone backwards and fallen to the ground. So this was a demonstration that was to show them all how really helpless they were in the presence of Jesus. How helpless they were in the presence of the one who spoke creation into existence. How helpless they were to the one who could speak his name and cause them to fall to the ground. But the Lord had already declared something else. In John 10, verses 17 and 18, Jesus said this. He said, Therefore doth my Father love me, because I lay down my life, 
that I might take it again. No man taketh it from me, not Judas, not Pilate, not Herod, not 600 men with torches and lanterns and swords and clubs. No, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. That was the power that he demonstrated that night. I have the power to lay it down. I have power to take it again. This commandment have I received of my Father. So getting back to the garden, by now the enemies are back on their feet, still apparently dazed. Do I believe that Judas fell back with them? I do. Uh, there's a reason why, and I'll tell you in a moment. But before them they saw an unarmed man they were probably hesitating. And Jesus asked the question only stronger, whom seek ye? The disciples were probably surrounding Jesus now with a bit more courage than before. They saw what Jesus did to them. They said, well, we can stand with Jesus. I think we'd much rather get up close to him. Yeah. You know, we build our courage by someone else's power. They got up close to Jesus. But Jesus was not wanting a showdown of any sorts and especially didn't want the disciples arrested with him. There was a scripture to be fulfilled. That was his prayer in John 17, 12. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in thy name. Those that thou gavest me I have kept and none of them is lost but the son of perdition, that is Judas Iscariot, that the scripture might be fulfilled. So significantly, Jesus stepped forward in the disciples' place as he has stepped forward in our place to save them from suffering and death. As he has step forward to save us from the very same thing. Remember that back in John 10, verse 11, Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. Think of the power. <clears throat> and I don't know that we oftentimes do this, but think of the power of the words of John 3.16 alone. For God so loved the world that he gave, which literally means he gave up, that he gave his only begotten son. Gave him up for this sinful, wicked, evil world that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. It's, it's, it's a verse to meditate upon more than just one time, but for a lifetime. Jesus offered to bear this alone 
There was no reason for them to die because they were sinners. But the sinless one had to die for the sinners. And he was not to lose anyone whom God had given him. Romans 5 verse 8, Paul says, But God commendeth his love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were yet sinners. You know, we could be like a lot of people who look at others and say, my, what a, what a sinner that person is and what a sinner that person is without ever looking in the mirror and realizing the one in the mirror is the greater sinner. Christ died for us. Peter in 1 Peter 3 verse 18 said, For Christ also has once suffered for sins, the just, the one just person, for the unjust, all of mankind, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened or made alive by the Spirit. Now I have a really important question to ask you. Getting back to Judas, why well, believe that he fell back with everybody else? Did Judas just pretend to know the Lord? He saw everything Jesus did. He was even a, 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 an active participant when, when the disciples were sent out with the 70, you know, and they went out and did great and marvelous, I mean, they did great and marvelous things because of the power of God that was sent forth with them through Jesus. He was a part of that. No word does it tell us that he wasn't there. But the question is, did Judas pretend to know the Lord only to betray him with a kiss? We're going to talk about that kiss next week. Even though John doesn't mention it, we're going to talk about it. But think about the question. Did Judas pretend to know the Lord only to betray him with a kiss? How many people are just pretending, not really agonizing over sin, not really agonizing over the struggles that we have? knowing that we can always come to the Lord and be forgiven. We can always come to the Lord to confess our sins because he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness because he said he would. People, we need to move away from pretense And we need to come to Jesus, truly come to Jesus. My last question, which I'll answer with a passage from Psalm 27, is this. What did the manifestation of Christ's power represent? What did the manifestation of Christ's power on that night in the Garden of Gethsemane, what did it represent? Truly, it represented 
that the Lamb of God, the pure, clean Lamb of God, came to take away the sins of the world. There's power. God was going to the cross. Psalm 27, verses 1 through 6, and I close with this. Listen to all of the things that connect to what we've read in the gospel. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? I mentioned that Jesus was the one that had light in the garden. The cohorts came with lanterns and torches, but they had no light in themselves. They came in their darkness, just as Judas stood with them in, the, in his darkness. The Lord is the strength of my life. That was the disciples standing with Jesus because they knew who he was. When the wicked, even mine enemies and my foes, came upon me to eat my flesh, they stumbled and fell. Sound familiar? <laughs> Though a host should encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war should rise against me, in this will I be confident. One thing have I desired of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Which brings to mind the words of Jesus in, in, in John 14. I know I say them all the time. If you're getting tired of it, I'm sorry. Well, I'm not really sorry. You ever heard that thing, sorry, not sorry? That's me. Sorry, but not sorry. Let not your heart be troubled, Jesus said to his disciples and to us. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am there, you may be also. One thing have I desired, that, I, that will I seek after. I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. Are we desiring that today? More than anything in this world, are we desiring to be in the house of the Lord? But until then, notice what David says in verse 5, For in the time of trouble shall he hide me in his pavilion in the secret of his tabernacle shall he hide me. He shall set me up upon a rock. And now shall my head be lifted up above mine enemies round about me. Therefore will I offer in his tabernacle sacrifices of joy. The joy is yet to come, but the joy was coming for the disciples. I will sing, yea, I will sing praises unto the Lord. And oh, would they sing when they were told Jesus is not in the grave any longer. He's risen and he's alive. 
That's something to shout about. And so, as we close today, think of the words of Jesus when he said, lift up. He says, keep looking up and lift up your heads. Lift up your heads. Luke 21, 28. For your, for your redemption draweth nigh. Your redemption is drawing near. He says, so shall my head be lifted up above mine enemies. That's for us now. A lot of enemies of the cross today. A lot of enemies of Jesus Christ. But we have to approach them just as Jesus approached the cohorts. Who are you seeking? Who are you seeking? My question to you before we leave here today is, have you found him? Have you found Jesus? Because he's available. He said, come to me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, I'll give you rest. This world can't give you any rest, by the way. This world can't give you any rest. The kings and the presidents of this world can't give you any rest. Ideologies and philosophies can't give you any rest. Only one person, Jesus, can give you rest. So come to Jesus. Come to Jesus.